This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So we recently talked about James Doolittle and the U.S. Army Air Corps raid that he led on Japan in retaliation for Pearl Harbor. And if you listened to that episode, you may recall that we spoke only briefly about Doolittle's crews landing in China and getting help from both civilian and military people there in getting rescued and getting home. But what we didn't talk about in that episode, that one was pretty lighthearted overall, uh, was the price that China paid for assisting the U.S. in this mission. And while U.S. military leaders knew that Japan would likely take action against China for their part in the Doolittle Raid, the extent of that retaliation hasn't really gotten that much attention uh, in terms of the history of the war. And this particular episode is going to deal with that. And it, it, we have to put a pretty serious content warning on it. Uh, the atrocities of war are often discussed, but the actual details are often really incredibly difficult to contend with. I mean, even here, I'm, we're not going to include everything because there are a lot of horrible stories that got read in the research. But a lot of times those kinds of things overall get kind of left out or glossed over. And some, many, in fact, of the things that happened in China after the Doolittle Raid were challenging for me, I know, just in the research process. But this is a really important story to tell. So if you think... Some of this, we're going to get into some pretty rough experiments and torture. Uh, we're not going to linger on them, but we will describe some of them. So if you think that might be too intense for you or for any younger history buffs that you listen with, this is your official heads up. This is basically a story about Japan punishing China. And the Japanese plan to punish China began almost immediately after the Doolittle Raid. There were already Japanese occupation forces in many Chinese locations, including commer- commercial centers, key coastal positions, and Manchuria. And those occupation forces were in place because before World War II started, Japan and China were locked in their own conflict, the Second Sino-Japanese War. So we're going to talk a little bit about that conflict, uh, although this is admittedly an abbreviated version. Japan had really been eyeing China's national resources for quite some time. And in 1931, as China's internal strife between the nationalists and Mao Zedong-led communists, uh, Manchuria was invaded and occupied by Japanese forces. 
This was by no means a small region of China we're talking about. It's about the size of Germany and France combined. And the League of Nations got involved after China requested their help. And while the League condemned the actions of the Japanese, there really wasn't any retribution for the aggression and for them just moving in. But Japan did leave the League of Nations over the whole report. Japan continued to spread into territory in China, working for Manchuria as a foothold, until just about all of northern China was occupied by Japan. Because the nationalists of their Chiang Kai-shek were focused on trying to subdue this communist uprising that was going on, they weren't putting any, they weren't really putting up any resistance against Japanese troops, which is why Japan was able to occupy so much of China during this time. But eventually, China's military did make a bigger effort to push back against Japan's occupation. And the Chinese nationalists and Mao's Communist Party actually joined forces against their foe in the Sino-Japanese War beginning in 1937. I think we might have touched on this just really, really briefly in that four-part series we did a while back about China under Chairman Mao. So if you're looking for that part of that story, there's stuff on it in the archive. Um The Marco Polo Bridge incident officially catalyzed the war in July 1937. On the evening of July 7th, shots were fired between Chinese soldiers and Japanese troops stationed at the bridge, while the latter were doing training exercises. While the full details of this incident in terms of what happened up to that point remain really unclear, there was a Japanese soldier who was unaccounted for. When Japanese soldiers tried to enter a small walled town outside of Beijing to search for their missing man, they were met with resistance. The situation soon escalated and gunfire erupted from both sides. Negotiations failed to get anywhere and Japanese infantry moved in in greater numbers, eventually leading to a full-scale invasion. The Rape of Nanking, in which an estimated 100,000 to 300,000 people, depending on the source you look at, were killed by the Japanese, uh, thousands of which were women who were raped prior to being killed, took place in December of 1937, early on in the Second Sino-Japanese War. Uh, the brutality of the Rape of Nanking, including practices such as dismembering victims before killing them, burning people alive, brutally drowning victims... Uh, set the tone for the entire Sino-Japanese War. And the conflict dragged on for years after that, well into World War II. The situation between China and Japan in 1940, which was two years before the Doolittle Raid, is often characterized as a stalemate. Both sides were struggling and depleted, so while Japan couldn't make a true victory happen, China also couldn't manage to push the occupying Japanese forces out of the country. Japan's brutality throughout the conflict and its walkout on the League of Nations hadn't really helped the country's global reputation. In an effort to cripple Japanese resources and assist China, economic sanctions against Japan had ramped up progressively, and the Pearl Harbor attack was really Japan's move when they felt that the U.S. had gone too far in limiting their trade options. We covered the United States' response to the Pearl Harbor attack in our Doolittle Raid episode, so we won't rehash that at this point. But now we're going to talk about how Japanese forces went about punishing China for helping Doolittle and his men by offering landing fields, although he and his men did have to ditch before reaching them, and by rescuing the scattered men after their mission was over. And this is where things really do start to get quite ugly. So before we go to the very dark places that war can take people, uh, let's have a break for a word from one of Stuff You Missed in History Class's sponsors. 
Alrighty, this episode is sponsored by longtime sponsor Stamps.com. You know that feeling when you can just get things done really quickly with the click of your mouse and it makes you feel empowered and awesome and super convenient things are happening and it's a fabulous moment? I will, in fact, deliberately choose to only do the thing that I can arrange online rather than the (laughs) one where I have to go anywhere or call anyone or talk to a person. Yeah, I'm big on that, too. And now uh, your mailing and shipping can fall into line with that same thing with Stamps.com. Stamps.com will turn your PC or your Mac into your own personal post office that never, ever closes. It is super-duper convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and your printer that you already have. Then just hand that mail or parcel off to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox, and you will never have to go to the post office again. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code, which is STUFF, to get a special offer. That includes a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage, and a digital scale. So don't wait. Just go to stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in stuff. That's stamps.com and enter stuff. So on June 11, 1942, a horrifying march of Japanese troops into the city of Nanchung started, in which they occupied for a month. And I hope I got the pronunciation correct. I never got one clear pronunciation on that uh, online. As you know, we look things up, but often they are contrary. So that's the scoop. Well, and there are so many different dialects spoken in China that a lot of times, even if you try to stick with one of the primary ones, people with different accents say it in different ways. Yes. So according to accounts written by missionaries in the area at the time, the Japanese soldiers turned this city into a living hell for the 50,000 residents who lived there. During their occupation, Chinese soldiers corralled women and girls over the age of 10 into a warehouse in the city. This was an estimated 800 people. The captives there were repeatedly raped. This led to an ongoing problem of uh, sexually transmitted diseases among the few survivors of that occupation. Additionally, occupation forces would wander the city, often inebriated, simply shooting people at whim, capturing addition women and girls to take to that warehouse, and just destroying property. And as their time in the city ended, the occupation forces systematically destroyed the infrastructure there. The electrical plant was completely destroyed. The railroad lines into the city were pulled up. All radios that they could find were confiscated. The hospital was looted. And then the city was burned over the course of three days with a special fire squad that came in to lead the systematic incineration. This horrific course of events was unfortunately not unique or an outlier. Over a period of time lasting several months, multiple Chinese cities suffered the same treatment. Livestock and humans alike were shot and left for dead as troops moved through villages and towns. Roads, bridges, and airfields, of which there was great concern because of their potential military strategic value, were completely destroyed. Entire fields of crops were set ablaze, and irrigation systems were dismantled, crippling the country's food supply. And that's in addition to them just shooting livestock and letting it rot on the ground. So the food supply was really, really completely gutted at that point. Uh, An estimated 80% of the homes in some targeted areas were destroyed, and medical facilities were looted and then burned to the ground. If a specific person or family was discovered to have aided Doolittle's men, they were targeted for the worst treatment. Often the gifts that the United States soldiers had given to families to thank them, which were small things like United States coins or packs of cigarettes, 
They were the very things that identified these families to the Japanese troops and sealed their fates. There are reports uh, largely written by missionaries that were there at the time and that came in immediately afterwards to try to help of just unreal torture. Uh, people were burned alive. Often members of their families were forced to set those fires and then watch as their loved ones burned. There were also bullet contests where multiple people would be lined up together and then someone would fire a gun at them to see how many bodies a single shot could pass through. There were just so many different types of humiliating and really unique torture that were enacted on these people. And as the summer drew to a close, Japanese troops were withdrawn from their occupation. And then a second phase of punishing retaliation began. This was Unit 731, which is a name that you might have heard of before. This was a biological warfare unit, which was started in occupied Manchuria not long after Japanese forces moved in. In 1936, construction began on its most well-known location, which was a massive, massive facility in Pinfong. This was near Harbin, China, and it was branded as the Epidemic Prevention Department. Under Unit 731, the Japanese Imperial Army conducted medical experiments on par with the absolute worst Joseph Mengele performed at Auschwitz. More than 10,000 people, primarily Chinese prisoners of war, but also Russians and allegedly even captured U.S. military men, were tortured each year that Unit 731 was operating. Uh, those numbers are estimates that could be up or down since, as we'll talk about a little bit later, the records are a little bit unclear. Uh, but experiments were unfortunately not limited to adults. According to accounts, even infants were used for testing. These horrifying experiments included leaving people in freezing temperatures to then experiment on their frostbite, injecting air into their veins, hanging people upside down to see how long it would take them to choke, observing deaths that took place in gas chambers, and just innumerable vivisections. There were studies that were conducted to determine how humans would respond when injected with typhus, cholera, anthrax, and other infective agents. New weapons were tested on subjects to determine how effective those weapons were. Plague was introduced into groups of people to see how many died and how how the disease played out. Many of the biological weapons were also field-tested outside the compound on unsuspecting citizens of the Chinese countryside. In short, it was a systemized torture center, all on the banner of scientific discovery, and it operated, as we mentioned a moment ago, under the guise of preventing disease outbreaks. And in August of 1942, as the occupation forces that had been terrorizing Chinese villages, towns, and cities began to leave, biological warfare developed at Unit 731 began in those places. Massive orders for paratyphoid and anthrax were placed by the Japanese so that the germ warfare phase could begin. Bottles of water were distributed, seeded in flasks throughout the Chinese countryside in the hopes that they would be found and used but the water that they contained was contaminated with typhoid and paratyphoid bacteria. Similarly, prisoners of war were fed bread that had been contaminated with typhoid and paratyphoid right before they were released so that uh, the disease would spread thoroughly as they returned home. Additional tainted food was left in places that troops were leaving so that the desperate and devastated people left behind, again, already hungry without livestock or crops, would naturally eat them, thinking them to be harmless, abandoned rations. In addition to the disease that was purposefully spread through tainted food and water, there was also the problem of the decaying dead everywhere, which caused additional contamination of the water supply. 
and with medical facilities virtually non-existent thanks to their destruction that preceded this wave of disease, there really wasn't any way to treat or prevent the disease's spread. Malaria, dysentery, and cholera had all been problems in some of the targeted regions of China before Unit 731's bacterial warfare efforts. But by late 1942, typhoid and even plague had been added to the list of health concerns. And treatment, as we said, was scarce if it could be found at all. There was also collateral damage for the Japanese Imperial Army. Dealing in germ warfare had also claimed some of its soldiers who didn't manage to evacuate ahead of the spreading waves of illness. Numbers of both the Japanese and Chinese death tolls are all over the place. Estimates of Japanese losses due to the purposeful spread of disease range from between 1,700 and 10,000, depending on the source. For Chinese military and civilian casualties, some estimates put the death toll of Japan's full retaliation efforts post-Doolittle Raid at 250,000. That number, though, is incredibly foggy. There's really no hard data due to the fact that so many people were shot and simply left where they fell with no account taken of who had been killed. And those that got sick and died after the Japanese left weren't processed through medical facilities, so there's no real paper trail for them either. As for Unit 731 towards the end of the war, and we're going to talk about what happened after it, um, the facility itself was incinerated by Japanese forces as they fled when Russian national military forces moved into the area in 1945. So it had been there from the late mid-30s up until 45, so almost 10 years. Coming up, we're going to discuss what happened to Unit 731 as the war ended and what may seem like an unlikely beneficiary to all the research that was done there. But first, we'll pause for a word from a sponsor. It is no secret that I'm a night owl. Yeah, I know. (laughs) She sometimes gets emails from me at like three in the morning. but, But you know what is keeping me company now late at night? It's history. That's right. History. They've actually got a brand new late night talk show called Join or Die with Craig Ferguson, and it engages and covers history in a whole new way. So if you're wondering what Join or Die with Craig Ferguson is, I will let you know. It is a total departure for history, and it is unlike any talk show you've ever seen. Host Craig Ferguson debates historical figures, important events, and world-changing inventions with a panel of your favorite celebrities, luminaries, and comedians. So like Howard Bragman is on there, Jordan Carlos, Michael Ian Black, and Dan Soder super funny people that are super sharp, then they decide who deserves to join the ranks of history's most unforgettable and who gets to die off and be forgotten like the mere mortals they were. So they're asking big questions like who committed history's biggest political blunder or what was history's worst medical advice or who were history's biggest frenemies. So you, too, can join the debate on history's new late night talk show, Join or Die with Craig Ferguson. That's new episodes on Thursdays at 11 p.m. 10 Central on History. You don't want to miss it. History is back on history. There's a whole other side of this this issue that certainly doesn't get talked about very much, and that that's that the United States is not entirely blameless when considering China's suffering at the hands of Japan's Imperial Army. Uh, while Japan and China had plenty of problems between themselves long before World War II, the Doolittle Raid did catalyze an absolute hell-on-earth scenario for a lot of people in China. And American military authorities knew that this was a likely outcome, but they purposely withheld information about this likelihood from Chinese authorities and went ahead with the mission. 
We really should also point out that the actual men who carried out the Doolittle raid were probably not privy to this intelligence, or they would have almost certainly been a lot more careful about leaving damning evidence of their their connection to these towns and families around when they left. They probably would have been much more secretive if they had known. Yeah, I don't think those guys had any clue uh, about the retaliation intelligence. And additionally, the U.S., through the work of General Douglas MacArthur, actually granted secret immunity to many of the doctors and military leaders who worked at Unit 731 in exchange for exclusive access to their research in biological weapons. Japan would not be able to share that information with anyone else as part of the terms of this agreement. There's only a small gap between the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War. Tensions already existed between the United States and the Soviet Union, and the Unit 731 research was part of the American portfolio of plans in preparation for such a conflict. Yeah, sometimes you'll see it pitched in such a way that it was both the idea that no one should have access to this information because it is so dangerous, so we're going to be the custodians of it, but then it was also intended as part of this, like, we will have biological weapons research if we get into something with the Soviet Union. So it's a very complex and convoluted thing. But uh, because of that immunity that was offered to the leaders of Unit 731, many of the men who had run those horrible experiments there went on to prestigious careers in science, many of them heading up companies that produce pharmaceuticals and other medical supplies. Japan's cruel retaliation against China was reported in the United States newspapers. Both the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times ran stories about the indiscriminate killing of men, women, and children. But coverage really went quiet after the original first wave of condemning pieces ran. Yeah, there were a couple of articles and then not really much else. Um, And why the workings of Unit 731 have gotten such little attention in comparison to, say, the war crimes of the Nazis, which they're often compared to, is an issue that's debated and discussed at length. And for one thing, there really wasn't much information available for a long time. Then, as the 20th century neared its end, people started to come forward to tell their stories of working there. In the early 2000s, more and more accounts emerged from people who had worked in Unit 731. For the most part, these were people who were very young when they were ordered to engage in many of the really awful experiments by their superior officers. Yeah, there was one account uh, that I was reading, and I don't remember which of my sources it was from, but it, it was a, a man who was now elderly, but he was talking about how he he knew as he was doing this particular thing that it was horrible, but he didn't know how to possibly like resist a direct order. So, you know, it gets into a whole arena we could discuss about, like, what war does to people mentally. And that's like a whole psychological angle to it that is not so much maybe in our purview, but certainly other House to Works podcasts could cover. Uh, And there has been ongoing tension between China and Japan regarding Unit 731. So while the Japanese government has formally apologized on multiple occasions for its actions in World War II, there has never been specific acknowledgement of the work of this biological warfare unit. In the Tokyo War Crimes Trial, which began in 1946, while more than two dozen Japanese civilians and military officers were tried for their actions during the war, Biological warfare was not a major player in the prosecution's case, was barely touched on, much to the dismay of the Soviet Union, which felt it had provided ample information 
to build a germ warfare case around. In 1947, the Soviet Union, still pretty dismayed that uh, that Tokyo war crimes trial had not really run with the evidence that they had provided, held its own trials against 12 of Unit 731's captured military officers and scientists and ultimately found those participants guilty. Uh, But the U.S. played down the entire Soviet trial, kind of labeling it as propaganda for the communist cause. And remember, we are right on the cusp of the Cold War here. So this is as as the escalation is starting to happen of the U.S. and the Soviet Union denouncing the moves each of the other makes. The head of Unit 731, General Shiro Ishii, lived the rest of his life in relative peace and then died of throat cancer in 1959. And today there is a Unit 731 museum in Harbin, China, where the occupation compound once stood. And the exhibits there recreate the horrific experiments that took place in the 1940s, but in a very stylized way, uh, so that visitors will fully grasp the extent of the cruel treatment people received there. Much of the information used to recreate the scenes in the museum was garnered from interviews with former guards and other tertiary employees who came forward with their stories long after the war was over. It's such a horrific thing. I can't even... Um, yeah. Uh, there are pictures of some of the displays of the museum online. There are also pictures from during the war that are horrifying. Uh, but the displays are laid out in a very interesting, and like I said, it's a very stylized way. So if people are curious, you can go online and look for those. Do you want to bring up the room with some less death and destruction listener mail? I've heard that you have some pretty interesting listeners. <laughs> uh, this listener mail is going back to our episode about the USS Cyclops, and it is from our listener, Richard. And he says, hi, my name is Richard. I'm a regular listener to the podcast and a big fan of you two ladies. I recently listened to your show about the disappearance of the USS Cyclops. I am an ex-navigation officer, having sailed up to the rank of first officer in a seagoing career lasting 11 years. I have my own theory for the reasons of Cyclops' disappearance. I currently work in the maritime insurance industry, which has exposed me to the issue of cargo liquefaction. Cargo liquefaction is the process whereby the moisture content of a bulk cargo, similar to that carried by the USS Cyclops, coalesces to change the state of the cargo from a solid state to a liquid state. This change of state is caused by movement and vibration. When this happens, the newly fluid cargo sloshes around inside the ship's cargo hold, causing it to capsize suddenly without warning and with no time to respond. This problem affects modern ships and most recently is thought to be the cause of the loss of the bulk Jupiter with all but one of its hands. The reason I believe that we can apply this theory to the USS Cyclops is because she was carrying manganese ore. Manganese ore in modern shipping is a, quote, group A cargo, which means a cargo prone to liquefaction if the moisture content of the cargo is too high. Modern ships closely monitor the moisture content of group A cargoes before they load them to ensure they do not load a cargo, which is dangerous. In my basic research into the USS Cyclops' disappearance, I noted she loaded up cargo in Rio de Janeiro in February. In Rio, February is part of the rainy season. If the cargo of manganese ore had not been protected from rain on the dockside prior to loading it, it could have become waterlogged. So it seems possible that she may have loaded cargo with too high a moisture content and suffered from liquefaction, resulting in her sudden capsize and mysterious loss. I hope this explanation may be of some use to you. Kind regards. Richard, that's awesome. Um... Uh, and I, I looked into liquefaction a little bit after Richard sent us this note. 
it certainly is a, a valid theory. I mean, he clearly knows what he's talking about. So it's one more possible explanation for a history mystery. I always love those. Uh, again, thank you so much, Richard. That was informative and illuminating. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also at Facebook.com slash History on Twitter at History, at Pinterest.com slash History, at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and we are on Instagram at History. If you would like to visit us online, you can do that at MissedInHistory.com, where we have an archive of every episode Tracy and I have done together, as well as those of previous hosts. We also have show notes for the Tracy and Holly era episodes and the occasional other goodies like uh, Tracy's done a couple of blog posts on how to find things in our archives, which are super duper informative and helpful for people that are all having those moments of, hey, I wonder if you've ever done an episode on X. You can go check that out. You can also check out our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. So we encourage you to do that. Come and visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.